0: When we hear the words, Secret Service, most of us think of that elite group of men and women who guard, protect, the POTUS, the President of the United States, and indeed they do. My sister-in-law used to work in the Situation Room at the White House, so we once had um, a private tour. We actually got to go right up to and peek into the Oval Office. And he wasn't in there, but the, standing at the door was this guy about six feet eight tall and about that wide. No flab. He even had the little white wire thing going on. Later, as we were walking around the grounds, you know, Rose Garden, that was kind of exciting. I, I wandered off, around a corner, started up some stairs that looked inviting. This guy appeared, all dressed in black, carrying a duffel bag, and he simply looked down at me and shook his head. This is all I saw. So I turned around. My sister-in-law told me, you don't want to know what was in that duffel bag. I thought, he didn't look like he needed the duffel bag. Secret Service did not actually get the job of protecting the president until years after they were founded. Uh, They provided uh, informal uh, protection of President Cleveland in 1894. It wasn't until after the assassination of President McKinley in 1901 that the Secret Service was given the formal responsibility of protecting the president. The year was 1902. But their primary job to this day, indeed the reason that they were founded in 1865, was to detect and suppress counterfeiters. That's why the Secret Service until 2003 was within the Department of the Treasury. It's now under the Department of Homeland Security. So, the original responsibility of the Secret Service Uh, was to expose and suppress counterfeiters. During the Revolutionary War, the British produced so much counterfeit money trying to undermine our economy that, that that money became worthless, thus the saying, not worth the continental. During the Civil War... It's estimated that almost half of the currency in circulation was counterfeit, which is why the Secret Service was founded at the end of the Civil War, 1865. It all makes sense now. From the Secret Service website, we read these very interesting words. The public has a role in maintaining the integrity of our currency. You can help guard against the threat from counterfeiters by becoming more familiar with United States currency. That is intriguing, very interesting. On their website, they go on to, to give lots of pictures and distinguishing characteristics of genuine currency as compared to the counterfeit. When I was in banking years ago, I did the Bible casual thing, banking, pastoring, there was this bank in new england which was known for the way that they trained their new tellers as they were training the tellers when they got to the part about detecting counterfeit money they did so only by examining real money the story says that they never handled counterfeits the idea was that you become so if you become so familiar with the genuine you'll know in a second when a counterfeit is presented, now, I, don't, I don't know how well the training worked, but I do know this. My tellers were very adept at detecting fake money. Yeah, they had this little handheld detector that they could run across the money uh, that would indicate it's genuine as red or, or green light would, would come on. They didn't use it. They didn't need to. They'd be counting. I'd be down the counter. They'd be counting stacks of bills. I'm fast. And all of a sudden, they'd stop, hold it out, and say, this one's counterfeit. I would take it from, and I couldn't even tell at first glance. They just had this knack because they were so familiar with the real thing. What's my point in that little history lesson? As Christians, we believe that there is one true God, and the rest are counterfeits. Now, I know that it's popular today to believe in religious pluralism. That is, that all religions contain some truth and, and that we all, you know, worship the same God or God's different names and that all roads will eventually lead to heaven. That is not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible clearly declares the exclusivity of the triune God, We just sing it, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the one way to know God and to reach heaven is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. All other religions are counterfeit false religions. This is why, for example, that Jesus gave us what we call the Great Commission, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that triune God. Here's my question. If they could make it to God and make it to heaven within their own religions, that is, without the gospel, why waste our time and resources on the commission? Why do that? But we go... And we tell others, we give so missionaries can go and tell others because we believe what the Bible teaches, that people must hear and believe the gospel, the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All others, he he is saying by that statement, all others are counterfeits. The the apostles taught the same thing. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. All others are imposters. All others are counterfeits. And so, the question before us today is, how do we detect counterfeits? I'm going to suggest that we do so by becoming so familiar with the real thing the truth of Christ, that we can spot a fake a mile off. You see, this this morning we begin uh, a study of the book of Colossians, and I'm excited. We just finished the book of Philippians, and many of you know that we are studying through Paul's letters in the order that he wrote them, and we are in a section that is called the Prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They're called prison epistles because Paul wrote them from prison. Ephesians chapter 3 and 4, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Chapter 6, I am an ambassador of the gospel in chains. In Philippians, we saw he, he, he spoke of my imprisonment in the cause of Christ three times in that first chapter. In Colossians four, he says he's been imprisoned for speaking of the mystery of Christ. Also in chapter four, he speaks of Aristarchus, his fellow prisoner. Last verse of the book, he says, "Remember my imprisonment." Philemon, 25 verses, and he speaks of his imprisonment five times. So at, at, at this, Paul wrote these four letters. From prison. We know that to be true. The, 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 at this point, the questions become when and, and where? Th- that is, were these four letters written from the same prison? And if so, from, from what prison? You see, the book of Acts records at least a couple of times that, that, that Paul spent time in prison in two different places, in Caesarea and, and in Rome. It also tells about a short stay of uh, you know, incarcerated in Jerusalem. There was an overnight stay in, in Philippi. It, it perhaps implies um, some jail time in Ephesus. Add to that Paul's sufferings that he enumerates for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And one of the things he talks about is his many imprisonments. So we have lots to look at, lots to discuss. I won't take the time to review all that very exciting data. But know that most conservative scholars, with very good reason, believe that Paul wrote all four letters from prison in Rome about the same time, about 60 to 62 A.D. Now, I have been saying that Paul wrote this letter even though many question that today. Some suggest that Paul didn't write Colossians and and give a, a number of reasons to include the following. First, they say that Colossians has too many words, in fact, some language, verbiage that is not found in Paul's other letters. Second, they say its doctrine is way too developed. It must have been written much, much later after this doctrine had been uh, codified. Uh, Third, it it sounds too much like Paul's other letters… Specifically, Ephesians and Philemon. So they say someone else wrote this letter in the name of Paul, copying his letters so it sounds like Paul. This is called pseudepigrapha, if you're taking notes, by the way, pseudo-writing, writing under an assumed name. It was actually widely accepted back then, and frankly, it even happens today. When, a, when an author hits the big time, ghost writers write in his or her name to sell more books. That's why they can produce them about, you know, like every three days. Uh, of course, those books better sound like the original author, same, same principle. But I want you to look at that list. It's kind of interesting. First, some say it doesn't sound like Paul, while others say sounds... Too much like Paul. Someone must have copied him. You can't have it both ways. Make a decision. The simple answer to the first argument of too many words not found in Paul or, or Paul or his other or excuse me found in Paul's other letters are that's true of all of Paul's letters. Every letter contains words not found in the rest of his books. Of course. Because the situation or the occasion for writing directed the the words or the language that he used. And, and, And by the way, that's why most of Paul's letters are called occasional letters. That doesn't mean that he wrote on occasion. What that means is that there was an occasion or a reason that prompted his writings. He was writing for a specific occasion, occasional letters. Well, as for that third argument on the screen, which says it sounds too much like Paul to be Paul, someone must have copied, I don't know, that seems a bit ridiculous to me, is it not also possible that it sounds too much like Paul because it was, you know, Paul? It's also possible that he wrote these letters about the same time, and therefore he says some of the same things and to say that paul to say that someone wrote in paul's name saying hey this letter is from paul when it wasn't i don't know to me it seems a bit dishonest untrue seems like it's a lie so if you can't trust those verses that say that how can you trust any of the verses besides we're going to find in colossians chapter 3 verse 10 that this author writes do not lie to one another. How can the author write, don't lie when he does? Here are the verses that says that Paul wrote Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Chapter 1, verse 23, the hope of the gospel, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, the very last verse of the book. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, when he says that, it means, what that means is that he typically used a secretary, a scribe, the technical term is amanuensis if you want to impress your friends. Um, He used a secretary to do the physical writing but it was his tradition, and he did this in a number of letters, to take the pen from the scribe, put it in his own hand, and write the closing as he does here. It's very likely that Timothy, perhaps one of his other companions, but I think Timothy um, did the actual composition or the actual writing of this book. Now, it's been universally held by the Since the early church that Paul wrote Colossians, well, you know, because the letter says he did, and the early church leaders, those who came right after the apostles, called church fathers, said he did. They they would quote from Colossians, and they would attribute it to Paul. They say, as Paul says and quote from Colossians, people like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, if those names mean anything to you. It was believed to be written by Paul for the first 1,800 years of the church. But in the 19th century, some guys came along and said, even though it sounds like Paul, even though the letter says it is from Paul, just because people who lived right after it was written said that Paul wrote it, and just because the church believed Paul wrote it for 1,800 years, we don't think so. Why? I don't know, indigestion. Primarily, primarily for those reasons that we just looked at. Brilliant. As to that second reason, a theology that was too developed, let me say some things about that, critically important for this book. Again, we have been studying Paul's letters in the order that he wrote them, and there is a developing theology We, for example, have seen him move from his focus on eschatology in 1 and 2 Thessalonians to to, to doctrine and correcting error. And he's going to move to ecclesiology, that is to church structure when we get to the pastoral epistles. You see, because since it's becoming obvious that Jesus isn't going to come back right away, I better write some things about how to structure the church. So there is this developing theology Second, the truths that are contained in this book, they can be found in his other letters. Maybe not as well formulated to to this degree, that's true. But third, remember that this was an occasional book. That is, there was an occasion for which he wrote the letter. And the reason he wrote required this fully developed theology that we're going to find. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. So, Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome about the same time that he wrote the other letters, especially Ephesians and Philemon. There's great similarity in those letters. In fact, we're going to find that he probably sent the letters at the same time Uh, with a guy named Tychicus. Tychicus was the mailman who delivered these letters to their respective locations, to Ephesus and to Colossae and to a guy named Philemon. It is also true that pseudonymous writings were common back then. You know those ghost writers? True, common. But there is no evidence, not a shred of evidence, that such writings were received by the church. In fact, the evidence shows just the opposite, that the early church, if they knew that it was written by a ghostwriter, a synonymous piece, they rejected it outright. For example, we read these words by an early bishop of Antioch named Serapion. He said this, "'We receive both Peter and the other apostles of Christ, but as experienced men, We reject the writings falsely inscribed with their names, since we know that we did not receive such from our fathers. Our fathers didn't do it. We're not doing it either. The point is, if this was not written by Paul, the early church didn't know it. If they'd known it, they would have thrown it out. Okay. You may know... um, that in the letter-writing convention of the day, that you typically began by identifying, identifying yourself as the writer and then identifying the addressees who you're writing to. You follow that up maybe with a prayer and then a, uh, and, and then a thanksgiving or a blessing. We find here that the addressees, those to whom this letter was written, was the church at Colossae. Now, at first glance... That may appear a bit confusing because if you've studied Paul's life and missionary journeys through the book of Acts, which we did together as a church like, you know, 15 years ago, um, Colossae isn't mentioned in the book of Acts. In fact, we have no record that he ever visited the town. So how did the church end up there? I don't know. How did the church end up in Boone? Who started it? Well, chapter 1 tells us. Verses 6 and 7 say this. The gospel has come to you, people of Colossae, just as in all the world also. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, just as Michael prayed. Even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow bond So, Paul did not start the church. Epaphras did. In fact, chapter 2, verse 1 indicates that Paul had never even been there. They had never even seen his face. Now, don't confuse Epaphras with Epaphroditus from Philippians. Completely different guy. But apparently, Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul, came to faith in Christ, and became a fellow worker with Paul. When did this happen? Well, it might be helpful to know where Colossae is. It's a city about 120 miles east of the Aegean Sea or the the coastline there, which if you recognize the map, that's modern-day Turkey. It sat on the Lycus River. On an important road between the Aegean Sea and the Euphrates Euphrates River. In fact, there was another very important north-south road that went through um, Colossae for a time. In its heyday, it was a very important city. But then they moved that north-south road over a few miles to make it run through Laodicea. And by Paul's time, Colossae was a second-rate city. More important were those nearby cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Remember those names. Very importantly, Colossae was only 120 miles from Ephesus, right on that road. Paul spent two, maybe three years in Ephesus ministering and sharing the gospel. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we read these words, this this." Preaching the gospel took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia, that's Asia Minor... Heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So it seems that while Paul was sharing the gospel in Ephesus, all who were in Asia Minor had the opportunity to hear about Jesus. One of those was a guy named Epaphras who was from Colossae. And chapter 4, verse 13 says that he went back and shared the gospel and planted churches, are you ready, in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. It makes sense. So, now. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, because I don't want anyone to say that I preached an entire message, never getting to the text. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, stop right there. We know that the word apostle literally means one sent, a sent one with a message. And we also know that the word apostle is used two, maybe three different ways In the New Testament, it was used to speak of the original 12 in this kind of official capacity. There were only the original 12. It was used to speak of missionaries, and it was also used to speak of the gift of apostleship, to speak of uh, uh, of a man who would retain some level of oversight of the churches, continued oversight. Paul seems to have been all of those. He claimed the official title with the Twelve. He was certainly a missionary and went around starting churches, and he retained some level of oversight of the churches. That's why he wrote most of the letters to churches as he retained that oversight. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is, he was one sent with the message of the good news of Jesus by the will of God. We typically skip right over that, but the point is this was God's idea. He made Paul an apostle. You remember when Paul was persecuting the church, God said, enough of that, Saul. You are now going to be my messenger to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. He was an apostle because God said so. This is the way it's going to be. Of course, we read the letter came from Timothy and that he was a traveling companion with Paul and, again, was probably that scribe who physically wrote the letter. To the saints and faithful brethren, that's brothers and sisters, in Christ who are at Colossae. Don't miss that. Don't miss the fact that Paul writes to them as family members, brothers and sisters, because they were in Christ even though there's no evidence he had ever been to Colossae. There's no evidence that they had ever laid eyes on him. Didn't matter. They were family members in Christ. Just like when we meet a brother or sister for the first time and our heart leaps because we know they're a follower of Christ. Or maybe we hear about them from around the world. Never met them, but we know they're family because they are in Christ. Christ. He calls them saints as he typically does. All of them are, all of them are saints, not just the spiritual elite. Every saved person is a saint because they are in Christ. Saints means holy ones, made holy by the work of Jesus on his cross, which means you here today, if you know Jesus, you too are saints. Holy ones. He then goes on to give his typical greeting. The normal greeting and Letters of his day was something like greetings and peace. Paul took that word greetings, rearranged a few letters because they're very similar in the Greek, rearranged a few letters, Christianized it, and it becomes grace and peace. And by the way, in that order, grace through the finished work of Christ on his cross gives us peace with God and peace with one another. We know most of that. Now, I have said that Colossians, like most of Paul's letters, was an occasional letter. What, critically important, what was the occasion? This will take us back to our introduction. See, apparently Epaphras had come to see Paul in prison in Rome, just like Epaphroditus, you know, minus the money. And he brought a great report that, Lord willing, we'll hear about next week. But he also brought some disturbing news. Surprise, surprise. Apparently, like many churches then and today, there was some false teaching and false teachers running around, and the the church at Colossae was in some significant danger. No evidence that they had been sucked in, but the danger is real. It's present. It's evident. And he writes to confront this false teaching. And by the way, uh, I, 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 I should add as well, um, that the church at Colossae is primarily a Gentile congregation. We, we know that when we read the letter, but we can't rule out that there were some Jews present because there were a lot of Jews in Asia Minor. But what exactly was this false teaching? There has been tons of debate about this through the years. Tons of debate. I read, you read all the introductory material, and most of the introductory material on this book talks about what was the false teaching. Paul seems to address it in, in chapter in most of chapter two. I'm gonna save that till we get there, but but I want you to notice some things about this false teaching. First, this teaching was a philosophy. And full of empty deception, verse 8 of chapter 2. The, the word philosophy, philosophia, implies that it was a system of teaching. It was well organized. It was also according to the traditions of, of men. That's important. It was according to the elementary principles of the world. Notoriously difficult to translate. What is important is it was not according to Christ. Keep that in mind. Not according to Christ. It may have been connected to circumcision, again, that Jewish element. It had to do with legalism regarding food and drink and holy days, festivals and new moons uh, and Sabbath days. All of that is Old Testament language. Paul calls this teaching a mere shadow of what was to come, that which was to be found in Christ. This teaching seemed to uh, involve asceticism, they do, their slogan seemed to be, do not handle, do not taste, don't even touch. Seemed to involve the worship of angels. We'll talk more about that when we get there. It also seemed to involve visions that they were very proud of, which leads to the next one. These false teachers were a very proud group. All right, isn't that interesting? They're involved in denying themselves. That's what asceticism is. You deny yourself. You know, we're just really lowly and humble, but they're very proud of that. It contained an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. Don't miss that. If any religion will get there, why don't we just make up another one? You can't do that. see, it's not according to Christ. And last, this asceticism not only included self-deprivation, but even self-abuse through severe treatment of the body. That is a very long, very convoluted list. The problem, the problem for us today is that we cannot identify one group who taught all of that stuff in Asia Minor at this time. This this is actually another reason that they say Paul couldn't have wrote it because we can't find any group that looks like this. Long time, guesses were made that these were Gnostics. Only problem with that is the Gnostics didn't arise, uh, arise until the second century. If you've got a study Bible, it might even say in the introduction to the book, probably the Gnostics probably wasn't. Uh, when it's all said and done, what you have in this list is an amalgamation of lots of different false teachings, local pagan theology. Jewish legalism and Jewish mysticism. You put that all together and it is called syncretism. Very common back then, very common today. You just combine the elements of a bunch of different religions, presto changel, you got a new one. And again, the problem is, it doesn't rep- seem to represent any one of them, but a mix of all of these, bottom line of this teaching was Listen, Jesus is not enough. You need more than what Jesus has to offer. He's a great beginning. But if you want to move on to spiritual maturity, you've got to follow our teaching, our rules, and our practices according to this list. So Paul writes to combat that. Listen, he writes to combat that, and in doing so, he lifts our Savior Jesus Christ very high. So, how does Paul battle false teaching? By making us so familiar with the truth that we can spot a counterfeit a mile off. That's Why this theology is so well developed in this book. This theology is called Christology. It's the doctrine of Christ. As I said earlier, most of what Paul says in this letter can be found in his other letters, but not to this degree, not to this form. Some suggest that it is the highest Christology, the highest Revelation of the doctrine of Christ in all, in all of the Scripture, even in, in the Gospel of John. That's why I'm excited about preaching it. We're going to talk about Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 is absolutely mind-boggling. It is fantastic. It is amazing. We read some of it together. It is unparalleled and has encouraged the truth about Christ for centuries. Listen to what some have said about this amazing book of Colossians, and I'm going to finish with this. John Calvin said, this epistle distinguishes the true Christ from the counterfeit, from the fictitious one. F.F. Bruce said, the antidote to the human tradition, what you want to make up, which the Colossian Christians were disposed to accept was a statement of the one trustworthy tradition, the true doctrine of Christ. David Powell, another one of my commentators, said Paul corrects and challenges his audience's understanding of Christ by insisting on the centrality and the lordship of Christ. This provides one of the most significant Christological discussions in the New Testament. D.A. Carson, Doug Moo, and Leon Morris said this, The great themes of Christ's outstanding excellence and the completeness of the salvation that he brought about in dying for his people on the cross runs throughout this entire letter. It's amazing. Doug Moo in his commentary on this book said, The Christology of Colossians has a very practical concern to demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ for every believer's spiritual need. You have a spiritual need here this morning. I'm going to tell you right now, it is not going to be found in anything but Jesus Christ. That's it. It's all I got. And that's all you got. Moo said further regarding these false teachers who were saying that we need something more than Jesus You need something else besides Jesus to reach spiritual maturity. He said, Any teaching that questions the sufficiency of Christ, not only for initial salvation, but also for spiritual growth and ultimate salvation from judgment, love this, love this, falls under the massive Christological critique of Colossians. I'm going to memorize that. That is good. And Kent Hughes said the dominant theme of Colossians is the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the head of all creation and of the church. Amen and hallelujah. That's what this book is about. So, my brothers and sisters, over the next few months... We are going to be brought face to face with the reality of Christ, with the doctrine of Christ, and the highest of Christologies, and it's going to burn off the chaff, it's going to drive away the faults, and it's going to expose the counterfeit. I will suggest to you this morning that the theme verse of Colossians is found in chapter 1, verse 28. Are you ready? We proclaim Him. It's all I got admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man and woman complete in Christ. So, we don't need more than Jesus. He is everything. He is all we need now. He is all that we will ever need. He is to be exalted to the highest degree We will become so familiar with the truth about Jesus that we will be able to spot the counterfeits and counterfeits in the church a mile off. Brothers and sisters, I will proclaim Him with the goal of presenting you complete, mature, finished in Christ. Let's stand for prayer.